Welcome to the Christmas Eve edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's that time of year for the year in review. Richard Brennan, former Toronto Star journalist, recaps the tumultuous year for both the Ford government and the Trudeau governments. Jeffrey Devorkin walks us through the knockoff effects of the digital media and the news, of course, and uh, particularly in light of the pandemic, the influence that it's had. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business gives us his view of this year in business. And Hamilton musician Lou Molinero reviews the music scene in 2021. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Our good friend and uh, always a welcome guest on the program, uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered both Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years for the Toronto Star uh, newspaper chain. Uh, Badger, good to have you with us. I hope uh, the holidays so far are going well for you. Just trying to keep the weight down, that's all, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, aren't we all? Uh, We've been saying that for two years, ever since COVID started, haven't we? Uh, Listen, I want want to kind of break this up, because you've covered both federal and and, uh, provincial politics, of course, for many years. So let's uh, we'll set the federal side. We'll cover that in a a few minutes. But I want to talk about what's going on here in Ontario and politics. And uh, it was a a rather unusual year, of course, in, in provincial politics and municipal politics, for that matter. And uh, COVID, of course, dominated everything. It always will, and it will in federal politics as well. Uh, not so much the fact that the, the variant is with us and that the pandemic is still with us, but I, I think, you know, the majority of the news stories that we've talked about, and I think that uh, probably caused a great deal of angst for the government, uh, had to do with how they handled the the pandemic. And I guess we could probably even uh, go back, well, 12 months to, to last Christmas, uh, when when Rod Phillips got caught uh, breaking his own uh, premier's order to, to stay home and uh, was off on a nice little Caribbean holiday, I guess uh, it's it's just been a rather bizarre time, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely, uh, Bill. Y- you can't talk about politics in the in the past year and and not include you know COVID nineteen. I mean, it just dominated everything. It for the particularly for the for the Ford government. I mean, they just, they can't seem to get their head above water. Just when they seem to, you know, they think that things are going, you know, swimmingly, uh, another variant comes along and dogs the government. And it, and just recently we have seen this. We've seen lineups for, uh, you know, PVR tests and, and for boosters and, and all that. It looks something like out of the Soviet Union, you know, with people lined up for, Gosh, around buildings in in what looked like for a kilometer. I mean, it it was just nuts, and that's going to all reflect badly on the Ford government, rightly or wrongly. But that's that's just the reality of things. Well, but you know, it, we look to government for that that kind of direction and leadership, don't we? Uh, to to organize all of these things, and and the criticism that I've heard leveled probably pretty consistently right through this pandemic is that, first of all, they don't usually listen to the medical advice. They tend to water down what the, the science table and others are, are recommending and, and suggesting. But the other aspect of it is they don't bring the other people to the table. You know, even just more recently, of course, when they talked about you know the vaccination campaign and uh, how he just wanted to drop it to 18 and under and over rather and say everybody... And he says, well, the pharmacies are going to look after that. When we talked to the Pharmaceutical Association, they said, that's news to us. Uh, how are we going to handle this? Well, I don't know. We don't know. Uh, we just got it got dropped on our plate. Well, you know, like, where's the inclusion? Where's the, where's the we're all in this together attitude that the government keeps talking about? Bill, it, the whole the whole uh, handling of the uh, COVID the pandemic has been chaotic. 
it's 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 always reactive it's never proactive you know we should have foreseen another variant whatever that variant might be come along and be ready for it but we weren't and we're back on our heels once again and i know the the government nobody nobody was ready for the, this pandemic and it's something like this hasn't happened for you know a hundred years but the point is it's been here for a while now since you know the late 2019 and so let's get a handle on it and we've not been able to do that so far let's talk about the the policies themselves uh you've covered politics for a long long time now i mean no politician that i've ever met wants to deliver bad news uh, they don't want to upset people because, let's face it, getting elected is all about popularity. People thinking that you know you you can handle the job, uh, but they, as you mentioned, they've done everything in half measures. I, I, I'm assuming it's because they they didn't want to be the the bearer of bad news to say, look, we're going to shut everything down, or hey, we're going to have to do this or that, or we're going to have to close the schools down. Uh, I, I know they've been accused of trying to penny pinch in this thing, and that may be a factor in this too. But they didn't seem to handle this right from the get go. And I, one of the criticisms, of course, was with the chief medical officer. Uh, well, the one that we were first of all talking about, Dr. Williams, who, who stepped down. Uh, but this was a guy that Ford asked to stay on. And just about every time this guy stood up there with his weekly briefings and talked about what was happening and what we should be doing about it, the criticism always was, is he bending to whatever the premier wants him to say, as opposed to being the doctor who's going to say, here's the medical advice. It, it, it put us, everybody, I think, in a rather precarious situation. We needed a strong person in, in terms of medical officer health in, in that uh, provincial officer health in that job. And we didn't have it. We don't need somebody just to nod their head when the premier says something. He was to set the tone. And that's where a lot of this went wrong right from the very beginning. We didn't have anybody who was taking charge, who was taking a hard line and saying, this is what has to be done now, not later. Now, you know, Places have to be closed down, shut down, and, and restrictions have to be brought in. But no, this lingered. You know, we we you know we didn't need a mask, and then we needed a mask, and you, know, you didn't need a you know didn't need a vaccine, then you needed a vaccine, and, and it the, the whole thing, like I say, it was just chaotic, and we didn't have that person there to take charge, and that's that's really where the whole thing started to fall apart. And what frustrated me about this, and, and I'm sure you as well, is I, I can understand to a certain extent cabinet ministers that have to stick to the party line because that's their job and the premier's their boss. And, you know, even if they think differently about that, you know, the, the mantra always is, well, once the door is open to the cabinet room and we go out there, this is the line where everybody has to sing by. And, and I understand that. Don't always agree with it, but they do it. But the chief medical officer is not a member of cabinet. Uh, he, he or she should be independent of this. And if you think something's wrong, and if you think this is the wrong way to go, I, I think it's their job to stand up and say, no, Mr. Premier, that's not what we should be doing. And we never heard that. And that was, and like I say, Bill, that was the unfortunate part of all this. This could have been, had a much different outcome than we had if there'd been that person there to take charge. And I didn't expect, you know, I didn't expect the premier, no one else out did either, to be an expert on the pandemic. And he, he should have taken advice, whether he took it or not, but it should have been advice that was basically shoved down his throat and said, this is what has to be done. 
not what you think should be done or what political, you know, how politics has to be weighed in it. This is what, you know, because of the pandemic and the, and the, and the wide ranging implications of that pandemic, that person, again, the medical officer health should have been the leader, not a follower. And we saw that frustration, I guess, uh, come to a point. Uh, well, it was later in the year, actually, uh, when Dr. Uni uh, and other members of the science table seemed to be on the verge of resigning. Uh, I mean, the the moment that, that report came out, I coincidentally have to have uh, Dr. Uni on the program that morning. And the, the sense of frustration, I know you and I talked about it uh, just after he finished the, the interview with us. He was just so frustrated pretty much at the end of his rope. Basically, what he was saying was, look at this is not what we're recommending. This is not what we asked the premier to do. And and he he just thought, you know, if you're not going to listen to me, fine. And they finally relented and they did start to adopt some of the recommendations from the science table. But that should have been the mantra from day one. This, what you guys say is what we're going to do because you're the experts, not me. There were There's nobody in that cabinet, including the premier, that is an expert on pandemics or, or epidemiology or anything else. I mean, don't you bow to that expertise? That's what you have them there for? Well, we all know, Bill, you and I know, and everyone else out there knows that politics is always going to get in the way. But this this isn't time to have, uh, you know, somebody stubborn and saying, we're, we can't do everything you're asking us to do, Doc, because the political ramifications, that shouldn't have played a part in it. But it did. We know it did. We saw that we saw it when the proof was many of these people wanted to resign from from the science table. So what does that tell you? That tells me that there was a problem right from the very beginning and that people that should have listened weren't listening. And I still think they're not listening. I mean, if we, if we just have to see what's going on right now to understand that they are, again, where they're caught flat-footed. And there's no reason they should have been caught flat-footed. Well, it's it's a frustrating situation. And, and uh, I mean, there are so many different uh, side roads we can take here from uh, the education ministry and, and what the school should be doing and whether or not they were prepared. Uh, we mentioned uh, Rod Phillips a few minutes ago, who's now in charge of the long-term care file. Uh, that was a, a dog's breakfast and probably still is. I mean, what they're promising and what they're actually doing are two different things. And, uh, and on and on it goes. And, th and there's another situation, too, where there were three different reports about long-term care facilities and what was happening and what should be done. Uh, and, and the province just didn't seem to listen. And people died as a result of, of that inaction and, and, the, and the poor management of that portfolio. On that issue, Bill, did you read, and I just read this, this morning, that many of the pe people in long-term care have not received their booster? Yep. I just got to shake my head. What do you mean they haven't received it? We saw what happened at the long-term care homes where people died needlessly. And now we're finding that this problem still continues. I, when, when is somebody going to get this right? That's the question I want to answer. And a lot of people want answered. Get it straight. Finally. Well, and, and that's, I, I'm not going to say it's easy, but I mean, going to the facility, I mean, what are there, 100 people there? Bring in 100 vaccines and say, okay, at 10 o'clock this morning, we're starting uh, in this hallway, roll up your sleeves, as opposed to leaving it up to individuals to go and get the vaccine. I mean, that's where this whole thing starts to fall apart. 
and and there's some culpability there that, that I guess is not going to go away. A uh, couple, let me just shift a little bit to to one side here and talk about a couple of the other things. Uh, and one of the more controversial subjects that uh, I think is starting to gain some traction, I think is probably going to be a big story in, in uh, the next year too, is uh, the use of these ministerial zoning orders, uh, especially with pushing through Highway 413 and the Bradford Bypass, two major highway projects that look like they're going to be some of the key elements of their re-election campaign next year. Well, yeah, uh, they're going to build a ro uh, road, the 413, and we have they're not telling us how much it's going to cost. Right off the bat, you, you start scratching your head and say, well, hold on a second. And and what implications, what you know, environmental implications are going to be uh, in this stretch of road that that's going to, you know, kind of go north, northeast and and to connect with the uh, 400. There are so many questions. And but I'll tell you this. If the government is one thing, it's bullheaded. They're going it. it Ford in particular is going to go ahead with that highway, regardless of, of any uh, you know environmental pushback from groups or that they're just they're just going to go ahead with it, and that that can happen. I'm not saying you know maybe I'm not saying it shouldn't happen, but it can happen with the limited information we have and the damage that many people believe that that environmental damage that that highway is going to do. And that's just another case where, you know, where these ministerial orders are going to be rammed down people's throat, whether you like it or not. And we're, and we've seen that time and again. And, and on the same page as say, Hey, we're not listening. Uh, just about every local council that's, uh, that's going to be impacted by this proposed highway has, has voted uh, to, to say, we don't want it. Please don't do this in our community. Uh, yet they're going ahead with this. And I, I want to contrast that with a project that I know you covered quite well, was the, the proposed Mid-Peninsula Highway that was supposed to be going essentially from Fort Erie up to Hamilton Airport and eventually hooking over with the uh, the 400 series highways. Never happened. Uh, and one of the main reasons why is because Halton Region said, no, you're not putting the highway through here. And, and you know, they, they put up a, a big stink and the government put it on hold and Subsequently, of course, they decided to drop the whole thing. I, I still think it's worthy of conversation at some point, but at least they listened to local council. This government doesn't seem to want to do that. Well, a perfect example of that is that, you know, the city of uh, Hamilton has asked for the government to withdraw the ministerial order on the former psychiatric land. Yeah. And, and we don't know, we haven't heard back from the government whether, you know, that's provincial land, mind you. So it's kind of a different ball. Of, Wax, but the point is, we haven't heard back from the province as to what one uh, with an answer one way or the other on that. It it just seems that it's this bypassing city council. It's got to raise flags, red flags for a lot of people out there because all of a sudden your voice, and I mean the voice of all the people listening to this station and others, you don't have a voice when they bring these orders in. That's it. It just pushes aside any kind of uh, opposition that you might have. And I don't think that's healthy. It's a, 
a, a, a head scratcher. And, and of course, we got to finish off. I got about thirty seconds left here. Uh, I guess just the the cherry on top here is the you know the recent polling indicates that uh, there is going to be an election by the way next June. Uh, Ford's probably going to get reelected, and it may well be because the, of you know the other choices that are out there, and the Ontario voters just don't seem to be enthralled with any of that. Uh, but that really kind of emboldens the government to say, hey, we can say what we want and do what we want because we're going to be here for a while. Well, that, the question is, uh, you know, all, all indication is it looks like there's a good chance that they'll get back, at least with a minority. But I think there's a big but here, and that's with their handling of the pandemic. And boy, there's more and more people saying this has been so badly handled that, you know, that this government has got to go. Whether you know whether you agree with that or not, but that's certainly something that's percolating out there. We're going to shift over to uh, federal politics in Parliament Hill, Badger, and uh, I know we, we were talking with COVID an awful lot about the provincial uh, uh, situation, and we'll we'll do that certainly with the feds because there's a lot to talk about there too. But let's start the conversation with the uh, federal election that nobody seemed to want except uh, Justin Trudeau apparently. Uh, even when he called it, uh, they had what many people consider to be a rather comfortable lead in the public opinion polls. Uh, and that evaporated faster than the Ticat lead in the Grey Cup a couple of months later. I uh, never thought I'd see that twice in one year. Uh, but it, this cost an awful lot of money. Uh, nobody seemed to want this. And uh, it almost cost the Liberals their, their, well, their minority government. I mean, the first couple of weeks of this campaign, Aaron O'Toole had a comfortable lead, and it looked like he was going to coast to victory. Well, it did. I, You know, this was a, a huge lesson for any political party. You read the polls, you think, boy, we've got it made. This is the time to pull the trigger on this. Well, guess what? It wasn't. He squeaked through. I, I Really, I, I, you could see the panic almost in, in Trudeau's eyes there about halfway through the election. He knew that they, they ran a very big chance of losing power. And it's, it's, I think the only reason they did, because Aaron O'Toole, dropped the ball a few times during the campaign and, you know, trying to, trying to be all things to all people. And, and in the end, I, that's the only thing that saved uh, Trudeau's bacon. Yeah, it's uh, I, I know that sounds like an old sports cliche, but uh, it, uh, there's an argument to be made here that the liberals didn't win the election. The conservatives lost it uh, because they seem to be doing all right. And it looked like a conservative m- minority, at least anyway, uh, but you're absolutely right. On a couple of very controversial issues, O'Toole started to waffle. And and it's amazing how quickly that changed public opinion, didn't it? Well, it changed public opinion somewhat in just the general public. But he lost support uh, among his supporters when he started, you know, waffling on various things that they, they feel, you know, uh, you know, near and dear to. He, he wasn't uh, he wasn't taking the stand that they he'd hoped they'd hoped he would. And that's that's where he, I think really sunk him. Uh, again, rightly or wrongly, the guy the guy was trying to the guy was trying to get elected. And his supporters don't sometimes don't appreciate that. They just care about whatever whatever thing really matters to them. And so they just they just sat on their hands and uh, said, you know, Sorry, but you're not the guy that's you know we want, which is uh, a big leads a big question. Who is the guy they or person that they do want? The conservatives that that remains a huge question for you know for the next uh, few years. But anyway, that was uh, and, and Trudeau just 
he he just read he read those tea leaves wrong, and it almost cost him the job. Do you get the sense? Uh, I think you and I had this conversation around this time last year too. Uh, that, that the prime minister's learned anything from this. I mean, you know, I, I watched some of the year-end interviews. Of course, you know, all the prime ministers and presidents, everybody always do these with some of the major uh, news outlets. Uh, you know, Evan Solomon uh, and, and and the like and have all had their, their chance to sit down with the prime minister. Our folks at Global have done the same thing. But I don't get the sense that he said, yeah, I'm going to be smarter about this. I mean, you know, we can go down the list here of the We Charity uh, obviously, the, the SNC Lavalin and, and Judy Wilson Rayboff and things of this nature. Yet they keep repeating these things. I mean, there's there's a certain attitude that he seems to take that is so that look, look at I can do what I want and say what I want because as long as that guy's there on the other side of the of the you know parliament buildings and and the opposition is is who they are, I'm probably going to get reelected. Uh, and he was pretty bold about that even during the year-end interviews. He says, I'm, I'm running again. Don't, don't ever get this idea that, uh, what was the phrase he used? I'm not taking that walk in the snow, uh, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. Well, it's entitlement. You can't watch him for more than five minutes and not get a sense of entitlement from him. Sure, he's a, he seems to be a nice enough guy, and, 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 and people, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like him, but there's a lot of people that do like him. But the, I mean, what he pulled when he went to Tofino on a holiday instead of, uh, you know, participating in the, in the first day of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. If anybody should get give your head a shake award, he should get it. And just time and again, he doesn't seem to have the judgment that you're looking for in a prime minister, you know, the things he does, you know, like taking trips and, 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 and not showing up for things. You just give, you, you just wonder, is this guy's head really into the job? And I'm, I'm, I, I, for one, just starting to question if, if he really wants to stick around. Well, the Tofino thing was a shocker for an awful lot of people, especially because, this was recently, and within weeks, I guess, of, of the discovery of the, the unmarked graves, and, and of course, exactly uh, that things are, are going to turn out the way they have, and it's just amazing. But the other side of the coin here is that there's an opportunity here for the opposition to do something about this, and, and they just don't seem to be able to handle this. Uh, and I think part of the saving grace was, and I'll pivot over back to COVID again, is uh, there's some concern early in the year about uh, the vaccines, et cetera, and there just seemed a real problem getting these. But they, I, they recovered, I think, quite well. Uh, and, and by springtime, Minister Anand, who was in charge of that portfolio at the time, uh, seemed to have a handle on things. We were getting vaccines. We were lining up and getting, and we seemed to, at one point, have this under control. And I think that probably put wing under the of the wings of, of the liberals to say, hey, these guys did get this right. I mean, there's a little bit of concern about getting the vaccines, but they did that. They did procure them. We got them out there. And, and by springtime of this past year, we were in pretty good shape. And I think the province were even looking to the government and saying, hey, way to go, guys. You got this done properly. Now, Nobody saw these other variants coming, and that's what really kind of threw us for a loop. Uh, but there was, a, I think, a feeling generally across the nation, maybe with the exception of Alberta, that these guys uh, actually had their act together and they knew what they were doing. In other words, they followed the plan and it was working. Bill, I, I agree with you, with you to a certain point, but I, I don't think we want to give them too much credit because our federal government was scrambling 
at the beginning to get those, uh, you know, those shots and, and the vaccines. But they did. They did. And, and you got to give them credit for that. But boy, I, there was there was a time at the very beginning there. I, it did not look good. As it turned out, you know, all, all the cards kind of fell in their favor and they were able to. But again, it was it wasn't being really proactive. It was reactive. And that's the problem that's dogged this, you know, the, the our, our handling of the pandemic from the beginning, right from the federal government to the various provincial governments. Well, that was one of the other things I think that, that stuck out this year, too, uh, was when we looked at the beginning of this pandemic that we're all in this together seemed to be. Uh, something that the premiers and the and the federal government were adhering to. You know, they they had the teleconferences. They all seemed to be on the same page. Uh, that started to crumble this past year, didn't it? Well, yeah. The, well, you know, we you know the Alberta premier, uh, he's he, he was telling everybody to go ahead and do whatever the heck you like because uh, you know it's the uh, the pandemic's over. Well, that and, was that was the big announcement that Kenny made, wasn't it, on Canada Day? Oh, you know, oh. basically, almost like it was all like a ribbon cutting ceremony. Like, you know, Alberta's open again. Forget about social distancing. Forget about masks. Happy days are here again. That didn't last long. Well, that didn't last long. And anybody listened to it, you, you had to be flabbergasted. You got like, where, what world is this guy living in? And it turns out it just blew up on, you know, in his face, uh, politically and otherwise. And, you know, it, they were looking, other things took over, of course, you know the uh, pipeline and other matters, you know, took for a while at least took precedence over the pandemic, but that didn't last very long. So that, that, you know, we're all in it together. Business lasted for, you know, a good part of, uh, you know, of, of 2020 and, and certainly a good part of 2021. But the point is it's fallen apart. It's now, you know, politics is raised, is raised its uh, ugly head again, and I think that's what's uh, driving it. Unfortunately. Uh, one of the other big stories, of course, uh, federally, and I guess even internationally, uh, was the uh, the return of the two Michaels. Uh, it took an awfully long time, but uh, as I watched some of the feedback uh, when that announcement was finally made and when uh, both Michaels were back on uh, Canadian soil, uh, a lot of praise for this government for sticking to their guns. And I know it was awfully hard on the families, and I know a lot of people were being critical, but, uh, you know, the old adage that you don't give in to terrorism, and that's essentially what was going on here. And uh, he did secure the release of these uh, through diplomatic means, of course. And uh, it's, it's a, I, I thought even some of the small-C conservative uh, critics of, of this government uh, who are constantly on the government's case about this, that, and the other thing, uh, I, I think gave a thumbs up and said, you handled this properly. It's, I mean, it's unfortunate that it happened in the first place, but I think it, you know, when you consider the ramifications, if they had caved in and acquiesced and, and, you know, and, and groveled to the Chinese government, uh, you'd hate to think of what the consequences of that could have been. Well, the Chinese government certainly thought they were just going to push around Canada, you know, little old Canada, you know, they won't put up a fight. Well, we did. And, you know, we said, you know, you're, you're not going to push us around. We're going to stick by our guns. What you've done is is not right, and we can't let it stand. And and they did take a position. I mean, it it really took the involvement of the United States. I I believe quite in all my heart of hearts. If it hadn't have been for a few calls made here and there by Biden and, and his uh, crew, that they wouldn't have got it out as quickly as possible. 
And all of a sudden, the the uh, decision or the matter that was was keeping the Huawei uh, official here in Canada didn't seem as, as important as it once was. So a lot of things came together, but Canada took a position and is still taking a position that China, you just can't behave like you're behaving. You just can't arrest people on trumped up charges, whether it be Canadians, Americans, or anywhere else in the, anybody else in the, from the world, as they've been doing. They, they've, they've been acting like bullies. And, and, you know, the rest of the world is saying in enough's enough. And we're seeing that with the Olympics. What do you see, let's crystal ball just a little bit, uh, in the coming year? We mentioned there's going to be an Ontario election, and, and as it stands right now, uh, the Ford Conservatives seem to be in the lead, but <laughs> we just talked about with the federal election this this past year. Uh, that can change dramatically, but uh, we'll, we'll let that play out. It's not until June. Uh, Jason Kenney that you referenced a few minutes ago apparently is in big trouble in Alberta. Uh, Rachel Notley, who was the former premier, of course, uh, seems to be leading in the polls right now. There seems to be dissension even within Kenny's party as to whether or not he should be the leader. Uh, there's a Quebec election coming up very shortly as well. Do you see the political face of this country changing dramatically in, in the following year, in the upcoming year, rather? It could. Uh, you know, it's cyclical, as you know. You know. We've seen parties replace parties, replace parties, and that's what that's what it's all about. But I, I can't imagine Kenny getting back in. I, I just think he's, his, his goose is cooked. And, and Notley, you know, I know, you know, she had a lot of her critics. But the point is, from my observation, you know, here in Ontario, I didn't think she did a very bad, you know, a very bad job. I thought she did a good job, in fact. And, and I think now that people, having seen Kenny and the way he's handled it, have, have you know come to the conclusion that what well, she didn't do a bad job after all period so well that's, isn't that a classic classic sorry. case of what you've been talking about for years oftentimes uh you know voters don't vote governments in they vote governments out uh and they got pretty tired of the conservatives at one point and they went to rachel notley and that surprised an awful lot of people uh, Notley wore the, uh, the 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 economic uh, downturn that happened in Alberta because of the, what happened with the oil sands, and that started to impact that. But yet here she was, an NDPer, who favored pipelines. I guess she understood the importance of that to the economy. And I, you're right. I think from what we're seeing in the polls right now, I think Albertans are having a little uh, you know, election protocol right now, and a little regret that they said, "Hey, maybe we blew it the last time." Well, it was just another part of it. Was just another federal member coming back to to Alberta thinking he could run the show that you know he had that all that experience in Ottawa and he was going to show people in Alberta how things you know were going to run be run and as it turned out he hasn't done a good job and I, I think you know it, it he he will it will cost him an election because his uh his inability to respond to this or that. Now that's one province. We'll see how the rest, uh, you know, the rest fall, you know, in their in their coming elections. But you, yeah, you could see a change, uh, you know, the the tide across across the country. It'll it'll be a more uh, it'll be coming at a slower pace, I think. But Ontario next June, that's 
that's going to be that's going to be interesting. And it certainly falls in the favor, I think, of the Conservatives. Yeah, but you never know. You never know with elections whether people are just fed up about this or that, and they're just and as they used to say, just throw the bombs out. Well, you were covering it back in the day when uh, when everybody just seemed to get upset with David Peterson for a variety of reasons. Uh, and again, the economy played a role in that too. I don't think anybody saw Bob Ray and the NDP getting elected in Ontario until about two weeks before that election. No, I sure didn't. And I was covering it. I, uh, <laughs> a weekend, or no, a weekend, about a week left, I should say. It, it dawned on me that something's happening here. Yeah, so you just don't know. And and there, that you've often seen that tide come right across the country where all of a sudden conservative governments are replaced by liberal governments and vice versa. It, it's just the way politics goes, it seems. But the pandemic has, you know, has turned everything so upside down. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to know how people are feeling about their particular government because of how the pandemic has affected them. And that's, that's the unknown. And that's what, if I was a politician, I'd be afraid of. Well, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if our personal situations uh, are, are adversely affected, we want to take it out on somebody. And elections as good a time as any. And we've seen governments turn on that. That happened in Nova Scotia just a couple of months ago. I don't think anybody ever saw you know, Ian Rankin uh, getting knocked out of office, but it happened. Uh, and and it, by the same token, when things start to turn for the better, uh, invariably people tend to at least give the government credit for, for doing that. Uh, you know, and and uh, you and I have had this conversation many times before. I think governments get way too much credit for uh, when things go well with the economy, and probably too much blame when things go badly with the economy. Uh, but they ride that wave nonetheless, don't they? Oh, oh, they do. And let me just introduce something else into you know that really is uh, muddies the water is the environment and. I think this is a situation where people are starting to pay a whole lot more attention to the environment after we what we saw in BC, you know, fires destroying a town, you know, floods and, and just unusual uh, conditions, environmental conditions. People and people are, are taking stock of that now where they, you know, they people, I think Canadians on the whole have an environmental gene and they just they want to see things improved but boy what's happened in in this this past year with floods and fires and that has really focused people's attention on what is going on and whether governments are doing enough to make sure that you know the climate climate change is addressed and addressed not now not sometime in the near future which I think, you know, we were talking about some of the problems that the, that the prime minister has had over the last little while. Uh, but that's one on the, on, the, on the plus side as far as he's concerned. I mean, when they look at the parties, uh, I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, the NDP ever form a, a federal government in, in our lifetimes anyway. Uh, so it's really a choice between the two. And the liberals and, and, and the prime minister had the better environmental policy. They've got the national daycare program, uh, which the conservatives seem to kick down the road. 
Uh, and, and you know, you, those are the sorts of things that matter to people. They have an impact on everyday lives. And uh, on that point, uh, you know, Trudeau and the liberals have got it right. And that's probably what uh, won them the election. Pro- and it's going to keep them in power. There's not going to be an election this year, not a federal election. Because uh, as long as this daycare program is rolling out, uh, I think they're going to f- solve this auto pack thing with the United States. I mean, that's that's really just a matter of some negotiations, and that's going to get worked out too. Uh, I'm sure to the benefit of the auto industry here, and uh, and that puts people in a pretty good mood. And so I, I I don't see anything dramatic happening in Ottawa this year. I don't either. I I I, I you know we all sit back and we hope that this situation with the auto industry is rectified and that that Biden backs off some somewhat on his uh you know made in america only approach i i can't see but you never know but you, i from this perch right now i can't see anything that's going to be you know just off the wall but again i don't know what where trudeau's head's at so he, he could he could pull another blunder of some sort where where people will just shake their heads and go, what is wrong with this guy? And hopefully he has learned something, but boy, I I have not seen it. Well, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, you know, if things start to, to settle down with COVID, and who knows what's going to happen with that. And as you say, with the auto pact and uh, the daycare program, I mean, Ontario is the only guys that haven't signed on to this thing yet, and that's something that's going to wear that Doug Ford's going to wear if he doesn't some, do something about that sometime soon. Uh, with a, a provincial election coming up. It's going to be a hot and heavy year. Uh, we've always enjoyed your your input into this and your uh, insights into uh, what's happened. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing this into the new year too, uh, Badger. Uh, best of you to you and your family for a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Take care of yourself. And Merry Christmas to you, Bill, and all the listeners. Uh, I hope everybody has a great holiday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to uh, talk about well, social media, I want to talk about the digital media and the impact that it's had on so many different facets of our life over the last 12 months. Uh, and to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Jeffrey DeBork. And Jeffrey, of course, is a senior fellow at Massey College and a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough Branch and author of a great book, too, by the way, called Trusting News in a Digital Age? Question uh, mark. Uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. Pleasure to have you with us again. Nice to be with you, Bill. I'll ask you the same rhetorical question uh, about trusting uh, news in the digital age. Uh, In the last 12 months, Jeffrey, I think we saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of uh, the digital media, but uh, there's no argument that it has had a huge impact on our lives, hasn't it? Constant, constant craziness that has been exacerbated by the digital culture. In some instances, I have to say it's been really valuable. Uh, For example, uh, two young people who set up a, a website called Vaccine Hunters, which showed people where they could get their vaccines. In, first in Toronto, then in Ontario, and then it spread across the country. This was a perfect complement to the fact that the governments didn't seem able to coordinate at all. And Vaccine Hunters, I think they should all get the Order of Canada for doing such a great job. On the other hand, <laughs> um, we're seeing the kind of spreading of anxiety and panic and um, undifferentiated statistics that are letting people just freak out. And frankly, this is where this to me is the downside 
of the digital culture. It's that it allows people to spread information that is without context. I Just this morning, I saw a really interesting little statistic about how many, what percentage of people in hospital are in ICU? And the number that are COVID related has not changed. It's relatively small. The number of people who are in ICU for non-COVID issues has grown. And that's basically cancer and heart attacks and all the other terrible things that happen. But the, the fact is, is that the numbers of people in ICU because of COVID has remained stable for months and it's relatively small. So what we're seeing is this idea that, you know, we're all testing positive and it's all terrible. Well, the other question is, when people are found to be positive with Omicron, what are the symptoms? And the symptoms seem to be pretty minimal. So it's like getting a bad cold for three, four days. So I, right now, I think we're in a, in a state of high anxiety about all this, and we're not getting enough information from the, the usually reliable sources of government, which seem to be panicking as much as anybody. And, and, and it's interesting to see how they're using uh, social media or attempting to use social media, too. But there are so many other people that are so much more well-versed in it. You mentioned about, the, you know, the vaccine hunters uh, and the impact that that's had. I mean, that they were the go-to page for an awful lot of people uh, that said, you know, I was on hold for 25 minutes for this provincial government thing. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, and bingo, bango, they get, that's okay. I'm getting it next Tuesday. And it, and it worked very, very efficiently. Uh, much to the chagrin of, of people that just didn't seem to understand how effective this can be. But has it become the go-to source for us now for information uh, for the for the better or for the worse? I mean, you know, there used to be an old phrase, Jeffrey, back in the days, uh, you know, well, I saw it in the newspaper, so it must be true. Uh, have we carried over that mindset to digital media now? Well, I saw it on, on you know, on Facebook or I saw it on Twitter, so it must be true. Uh, I think that's largely the case. What I'm seeing is that there is word of mouth spread on Facebook and, and Twitter about the ability of people in, for example, my neighborhood in, in downtown Toronto, you could get a booster shot from this pharmacy over on Bloor Street and people will go. And if they go to the provincial government website or even to the city of Toronto website, uh, maybe they'll get in sometime in January. Um, so I think that there is this reliance on localism, which is one of the things that I think uh, digital media does actually better than, than everything else. Uh, but actually trying to get reliable, consistent uh, information out of so-called uh, governmental or mainstream sources has become more complicated. And and this is a, a problem that governments will have to face and somehow come to the point where they need to exercise a certain amount of um, solid information. That's their job. And what they're not doing now is providing that. Well, especially because, I mean, what they will say is, well, you know, go to our webpage. Well, I don't want to go to the webpage. I'm busy. Uh, but if it's on a social media, if it's on a platform, a, a Twitter, for instance, that news comes to you. That information comes to you. You don't have to go looking for it. Bingo, there it is. 
on your on your phone and okay there's the information i need about well could be anything as you say vaccinations anything else that's going on right now are are, are there governments are there politicians that that are that savvy that they can use this to, to their benefit i that's a good question and it's one i've been asking myself for a while um part of the issue is is that we live in a kind of overly democratic i sound like a like a, a very conservative person here i don't think i am but it's it's this idea that everybody needs to be consulted before any actions have to be taken and that that's a lovely idea in principle but in a kind of emergency such as we are living in now and i'm not minimizing the fact that there, it is a medical urgency right now um there is this idea that every corner of the culture of the department of the government needs to have their say. And in so doing, it slows down the ability of any efficient response to the crisis. And that becomes part of the problem. So we are in a culture of uh, heavily consulting and constantly referring to other corners who may who we worry have not been sufficiently heard from that i think is what's maybe getting in the way to a certain extent well and for those who who are attempting to do this and i, I guess the example that comes to mind right off the bat was well, when barack obama ran in 2008 i guess it was the first time uh, he used social media very effectively to send out blasts about where he was going to be what he was going to do and and, and bullet points uh, and uh, it wasn't the only factor, but if you read David Plouffe's book, who was his campaign manager, uh, they relied heavily on it. And, and, uh, and, and I would thought, okay, that's going to be the new way. And I don't see a whole lot of, of politicians or even would-be politicians that seem to take advantage of it to the extent that they could. I'm wondering, maybe uh, it's because it's become such a, an inflammatory platform right now. Digital media has where, you know, if you put something out there, you're also putting a target on your back for people to respond to it and say whatever they want. Exactly right. And I think that a lot of people in positions of power have become uh, resistant to making any kinds of statements that might be seen to be uh, contributing to, uh, to the misinformation. So that rather than spreading partially accurate information, they're spreading no information. And I think that leaves citizens kind of at a loss right now. We don't know who's giving us the right information. Is in fact, it's is it safe to get together over Christmas? How many infants and toddlers can you expose to people who have been vaccinated or not vaccinated? All of these, how to cope with what's going on now, we're not getting consistent, clear bits of information. What we're getting are little bits of information that we then have to triage ourselves and talk to our friends and family and say, gee, I heard this on the radio or I saw this on the internet. What do you think? And so we're, we're at a point now, maybe it was always this way. And, and what the digital culture is just doing is, is accentuating that kind of normal confusion um, right now. I try to think back to my parents' time during World War II. My mom was in London during the Blitz and uh, she's not around anymore, but I would ask her, I would have asked her, what was it like to live when you didn't know what was going to happen next and whether it was safe to be anywhere? And my, my aunt, my mother's sister, who's still around, 
tells us, yeah, it was, it was a terrifying time, but somehow we coped, partly because I think there were fewer sources of reliable information. Now we have many sources of information, some reliable, some less reliable, some completely irresponsible. And so we are kind of forced back into panic. I have friends now um, who, for their own reasons, won't leave their house. Now, maybe they shouldn't, and maybe there are complicated issues, but there is this kind of retreat that's going on right now. And I think that the media, uh, present company excluded, of course, um, are imp- we're all partly responsible for, for not being able to send out reliable bursts of information. And so people well, are confused. I think people are cynical about that. Yeah, I'll go back to my example of the newspapers. You know, if I saw it in the paper, so it must be true. Uh, part of the foundation for that mindset was that we knew that there were filters. Uh, you know, if there was a letter to the editor that was, you know, a controversial letter, you knew that it was vetted. You knew that, oh, you know, somebody read that at the editorial department and they said, okay, we can print this. It might be, you know, raise people's eyebrows, but it, it was probably factually correct. And and invariably, we also knew, by the way, that they had to sign their name to it, too. So there was some, some accountability. Same thing with a new story. You knew that it was vetted. You know, they checked their sources. That's what journalists did in those days. Something on social media, there is no filter. I mean, you don't know what's true and what's not, and it puts a great deal of pressure on the individual uh, who's reading that or receiving that uh, to try to validate it or to try to dismiss it. And that's a pretty tough call sometimes. Absolutely. And and part of the problem is, is that certain media, I think more and more mainstream media sources are being more responsible about this, but there still is this tendency to want to uh, gather eyeballs uh, for clickbait so that they can sell that to advertisers or to political parties. It becomes a a highly anxious time for citizens, and this has been exacerbated by media. And so we're now seeing governments starting to talk, certainly in Europe and increasingly in Australia and Canada, to say, okay, we need to figure out a way in which not everything that somebody is thinking about has the ability to be expressed and shared. That there needs there need to be some kinds of standards and moderation. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I have a right to my opinion, don't I? And the answer I think is, yeah, maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Depends on your opinion. Not We're not in a democracy. Not all ideas are equal. There was a, there's a rush to, to be first, too, and maybe that's the, the fast food society in which we live. We want stuff, you know, immediately. Uh, I remember an old journalism teacher I had, Baden Langton, who used to work at ABC News and a favorite, well-respected individual in his time, uh, and said, your job is to get it right, not to get it first. And in other words, to validate this, uh, social media doesn't have that. I mean, it's, you always want to, they want to be the first one. You want to be the first one to, to issue that tweet. Uh, and and have you know be the the leader in a situation like that. Uh, so again, it it, you know, it puts an awful lot of pressure on us and uh, as as individuals to say, well, is this true or is this not true? Uh, before I re- retweet this, for instance, and and start sending it out there, you know, it's the old Winston Churchill line. You know, the truth, uh, you know, goes halfway around, or lie goes halfway around the world before the truth puts its pants on in the morning. You know, it, it, kind of an interesting analogy, but it just tells you. And and I guess. That was in 1945 that Churchill said that, and that was long before you know, digital media, and that just exacerbates the situation now, I would think. Absolutely, and, and what's happened now is that uh, 
the, some media organizations will say, well, let's get it out there. And if we need to run a correction, we'll do it. But of course, the correction is buried somewhere yeah. inside the website, whereas the misinformation or disinformation has already gone out there. Um, and, it, and it continues to be, to be sent around. This, become, this becomes the problem. So what I think one of the solutions can be is if uh, media organizations and professors of journalism and citizens in general kind of slow down and say, well, how do we know this? Well, how is this possible? Where is this coming from? We need to do more verification, both as uh, providers of information and as consumers of information. Instead of just saying, oh, gosh, this looks interesting, we should just take a moment because that's all it might take to say, well, where, who put this up there? Where does it come from? Who's responsible? Exactly. Uh, Jeffrey, always enjoy our conversations. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for all the times you've jumped on with us in this past year. Uh, all the best to you and, and yours uh, for a happy holiday season and a, and a great uh, next year as well. Thanks again. My pleasure. Same to you and yours. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Look back in uh, the year 2021, uh, rather nostalgically, I guess, and we want to talk about some of the economic issues. Uh, and to that, we are so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Marvin Ryder, a business professor, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. I'm glad to be with you, and happy, happy Christmas season to everybody. To everybody, I know. We're looking forward to the rain uh, coming up on Christmas Day too, and <laughs> and the fog too. Uh, Rudolph's going to need that nose going tonight, I guess. Yes. Uh, a year ago, Marvin, when we were nose is not red because of COVID. That's just a no. <laughs> yeah, he's Rudolph is tested negative, we, we, but that's that's right. the story. That lets the lead, and we're sticking with that one. Yeah. Uh, a year ago, when we were talking about economic issues, uh, the, the consensus among a number of economists, Marvin, seemed to be: look at when the case counts start to go down and the restrictions are eased. All this money that we have not spent because we've been locked down, we're going to get out there, we're going to spend it, and the economy is going to look after itself. It's, it's, going, it's going to be an economic recovery, not a boon, but an economic recovery. Well, here we are 12 months later, uh, and there are two phrases, I guess, that dominate the talk about our economy right now. One is inflation, and I don't know if anybody saw that coming, and the other is supply chain. What's happened? Yeah, well, let's start first with inflation. Uh, you mentioned that when, when we could get COVID under control, there was going to be money spent and that would cause a bit of a boom, and it did, and that's why we've got the inflation in Canada running around 4.5%, in the United States almost 7%, uh, because people started to spend, and they were spending so quickly that this is the other half of the equation, the supply chain got caught by surprise. It just couldn't produce some of these goods fast enough to meet the needs. Now, I'll throw in one other thing that happened during the year, and that's sort of an international story. There was a, a boat called Ever Given, a large mm -hmm. container ship that was making its way through the Suez Canal. And how it happened, we don't know, but it managed to get sideways in the Suez Canal. It took more than two weeks to unblock it. But in that process, more than 500 container ships were held up on their journey, and that began a cascade failure of the supply chains. And so we were playing catch-up in the second half of the year. Whether you needed you know, computer chips or you, or you wanted... Uh, spare parts or you wanted toys or you wanted lumber whatever it was you needed 
some of it was back-ordered, and there were predictions that Christmas 2021 was going to be harmed by all of those supply chain problems, and I'm not sure it was. I do know that many people started their Christmas shopping a little earlier just to be safe, but I don't, I don't think we've seen the uh, empty store shelves that many people thought we might. Uh, by the way, they renamed that ship in the source canal never given after that uh, so, <laughs> because of its lack of efficiency. Uh, I, I wondered about that, too, because we're still talking about, you know, uh, shortages. And, uh, well, there was a warning just a couple of weeks ago that, you know, better go get your Christmas, uh, you know, wine and, and, and spirits uh, in a hurry because they're going to be empty shelves on the LCBO. I don't know that that's happened or not. I haven't been in there recently. But uh, it, it all comes back, I guess, really to supply chain. But what's stark? obvious to an awful lot of us, Marvin, is uh, say, okay, I can get that. I'm not getting computer chips because those things are made overseas and they have to come across here. But what about the stuff that's being made here? Why can't we get that stuff to market quickly? Well, all of it requires transportation, Bill. And so, you know, it was, take again, let me just go back to the boats for an example. You get a boat across Pacific. Well, then what does it have to do? It has to dock. So the ports were overwhelmed. You didn't have enough people working, so they suddenly went to 24 hours a day and extra shift to try to get those off. You unload the boat, and then what do you load all those containers on? Well, you load them on trucks, so suddenly you need to have truck drivers. There was a shortage of truck drivers to get goods delivered to you uh, or put on the back of a train, and it just it was a cascade failure. And then keep in mind that as COVID was going through, still is going through, little groups of people would say, well, I can't work this week because I'm isolating. I can't work this week. I've tested positive for COVID. So even though it was a small amount, it just shows you that we had this wonderfully intricate, delicate balance going on about moving goods across the country. And when you disturb it in some way, you perturb it in some way, there are these cascade problems going through. I should note that both the inflation and the supply chain problems, people like me believe are transitory. In other words, these are not going to be a permanent part of your life, and we think they're going to be gone pretty much by March or April of 2022. They're still hanging around at the moment, but we believe they're transitory. That also explains why the Bank of Canada did not jump into the fight against inflation, because they said there's not really a need. It will correct itself. We just need to give it a little more time. All right, let's talk about something else that's really had an impact on our lives this year, and it's the roller coaster ride of uh, gasoline prices. Uh, uh, they were at a, a, it seemed like an all-time low anyway at one point this year, yep. and and skyrocketed right back up. What's going on there? Well, they were actually at the all-time low, Bill, back in 20, 2020, the year of COVID. You may or may not remember that for a brief while, I believe it was in April of 2020, oil prices on the world stage went negative. And what that meant was that you actually had to pay somebody to take a barrel of oil away from you. We'd never, ever, ever seen that. We'd never expected that to happen. But that was during the worst of the lockdowns. If people couldn't go anywhere, then they weren't going to buy gasoline. So then what is oil really worth? A year ago at this time, oil was trading in and around 35 to $40 a barrel. Then, in 2021, we began to release these lockdowns, let people go out, and of course, if they started to go out, they wanted to, um, to buy some gasoline or they needed some gasoline to get around. Suddenly, oil was worth something, and the price of a barrel of oil uh, about, oh, let's say six weeks ago, got as high as $80 a barrel. That's a 100% increase 
in the price of a barrel of oil. So guess what happened with gasoline prices? They have to match that. The oil refiners buy the oil and turn it into gasoline. Suddenly gasoline was floating around $1.45 a liter. I realized that most people wanted to blame Justin Trudeau and the carbon tax, but the carbon tax is a fixed amount of the total. At the moment, it works out to 8.8 .8 cents a liter. That's certainly not reason why <laughs> gasoline prices were flirting with $1.40. There is some good news. Price of oil has come down into around the $70 a barrel mark, and you've seen the price of the pumps go down a little bit. But that roller coaster ride on the barrel of oil was all about supply and demand. On one hand, turning the pumps off almost when we were in the midst of COVID, and then uh, turning them back on coming out of it. I should also note a role for OPEC, the producing cartel. They didn't like to see oil that low, so in 2020 they cut back on their production, reduced the supply to try to support the price. Then suddenly when demand went up, guess what? They did not increase their supply. They said, this is our chance to make up some money that we lost in 2020. So they've been rolling merrily to the bank with the extra money we've been paying. We believe that greed is going to cause the cartel to eventually turn those taps back on to make more money in the time being. But we haven't quite seen that yet. But that's the thing that stores in 2022. In a related story, as they say in the business, uh, if we're going to talk about that, let's talk about pipelines. Uh, mm. Joe Biden, of course, uh, took office in well, January, and uh, one of the first things, of course, that happened was uh, his cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, and there's still a controversy going on, of course, about another pipeline that's existing already uh, that goes uh, under Lake Michigan, and, uh, well, the governor of that fair state would like to cancel the whole thing and just shut it off. Uh, the Canadian government uh, is fighting that right now. What's the status and what's the impact that that will have on us? Mm -hmm. Well, let's quickly start with Keystone XL. That sure. was the pipeline that was planning to <coughs> excuse me, bring Alberta oil down into the United States and ultimately to the Gulf Coast for refining. This project has been kicking around for the better part of two decades. Uh, within days of becoming president, Donald Trump signed an authorization to build the darn thing. But they couldn't build it fast enough. And so then when Biden became president, he signed a new order canceling the project. The only parts of the Keystone XL pipeline that had been completed were in Canada, so there was no real loss to the Americans. Um, and he said that was it. By the middle of the summer, uh, uh, TransCanada Energy, TransCanada Pipelines announced the project was dead. They were going to write off nearly $3 billion of investment. And then in November, they announced that we're going to sue the American government for $15 billion worth of damages under the new USMCA. Isn't that interesting how Donald Trump's USMCA is now coming back to haunt America? We'll see how all that plays out in 2022. The uh, pipeline you're talking about doesn't exactly run under all of Lake Michigan. It runs from Alberta along the Canadian boundary with the United States, but has to cross at some point into Michigan, and it does it around Sault Ste. Marie. So for about, oh, let's say a mile, the pipeline goes underneath a very narrow part of uh, Lake Michigan and then reemerges in Michigan. It runs then in Michigan until it gets near Sarnia and then makes a beeline to the east and brings oil there. It also drops off some oil to refineries in Michigan. Gretchen Whitmer, who is the governor of Michigan, says, well, you know, if that pipeline ever happened to break in and around the Sioux, boy, think of the pollution. So I think it's time to shut that pipeline down. Um, of course, TransCanada Energy took her to court. That didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And then Canada exercised a clause uh, in an agreement we signed uh, four decades ago that said this wasn't going to play ball. 
and and for the moment it seems like we've we've uh, found some peace in all of this oil is still flowing through the pipeline there are even americans who say well we need this how are we going to refine oil in michigan otherwise but it really does speak to how we are much more sensitive to the environment and we're much more concerned about things transcanada energy on its part says by the way we're renewing that pipeline because it's very old it is more susceptible to breaking at this point that's why we put put the new pipeline in the ground you've had no problem for the last 40 years let's do this to make sure you don't have a problem for the next 40 years it's that kind of debate that we're going to see continuing on in 2022 Okay, so with all this going on, uh, there are some people that are just going to say, you know what, the heck with this combustion engine thing. Uh, that's, it's on the way of the buggy whipping the horse and carriage. Uh, EVs, that's where we need to go. Yep. So here in Ontario, as we know, uh, Premier Doug Ford, the same Doug Ford, by the way, that as soon as he got elected uh, four years ago, uh, canceled the rebate program for electronic vehicles, uh, tore out an awful lot of the charging stations, has had this conversion on the road to Damascus, I guess, Marvin. Uh, now he's committing to build 400,000 electric vehicles, uh, and he wants Ontario to be the, well, the North American leader, I guess, when it comes to EV production. Is is this a pivotal year? Are we going to look back on this and say this was the year that we made this switch and then we made this commitment? Yes. By the way, he's now known as Saul, Saul Ford, he's that conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, well, according to Doug, he said, look, uh, four year, or three years ago when he was first elected, uh, these electric vehicles, they'll never go anywhere, so we're going to cancel that subsidy program. But he's had a conversion. He really has. I think it's in part because all of the major car companies, not just North American companies, but even those in Europe and in Japan have said by the year 2030, we want to be producing electric vehicles in the light-duty category. So that means cars, small trucks, what have you. Uh, and Doug Ford realized that, well, look, we, the car industry is still a big employer here in Ontario, uh, and if we just stick to gasoline, we're going to make ourselves obsolete in 10 years. Wait a minute, i got to change my tune. So he's announced a, a strategy, an automotive strategy. You're correct, he would like to see somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 electric vehicles assembled assembled here in Ontario, uh, and that tune was carried by many of the major car companies. In 2021, there were a lot of car companies, Chrysler, Ford, GM, announcing that they were planning to put billions of dollars of investment to build those electric vehicles here in Ontario for the North American market. And we all sort of breathed easy and said, well, this is great news. This is going to keep that industry going for decades into the future. As the year was coming to an end, there was a little upset. Uh, our good friend again, Dr. Dr. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, uh, came out with the Build Back Better plan in the United States. This was how they were going to help uh, repair the damage brought by COVID. And there was just one line in this massive bill that said, we're going to give electric vehicle subsidies of 12000 $500 to anyone buying an electric vehicle, and you went, oh, good for you, and then you kept reading, only if they are assembled in America. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, now, Joe, I understand why you don't want to give them a subsidy to buy a Japanese-made one or a Korean-made one or a European-made one, but, hey, what about your good friends here in Canada? How about we just change American to North American? So there was a big summit in November. Uh, Justin Trudeau made that case to Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't exactly listen. We've uh, actually saber-rattled since then. We've said, look, if you go ahead with this, we're going to slap tariffs on American vehicles, and maybe we'll, we won't get you into the dairy market the way you want. 
At this moment, it all seems to have been for naught because the Build Back Better bill is dead. The vote they needed from Senator Joe Manchin didn't happen. So at this moment, we've dodged a bit of a bullet. But it does show you that although electric vehicles seem to be the way of the future, to make sure that Ontario is part of that, it's not enough, as Doug Ford has, to roll out the welcome mat. But we'll probably have to take some aggressive action to make sure we're not shut out of that market. Uh, and, yeah, more to come on that one, as they say in the business. I, we talked to the Labour Minister, uh, Seamus O'Regan, on the program earlier this week, and he said, you know, he, he felt pretty confident. They've had a lot of negotiations uh, that are not in the public. Uh, and uh, I, I think the Mansion vote has a lot more to do with it than the negotiations from our government. But we'll see how that happens in the next little while. i got a couple of minutes left. i got to ask you about one other story, too. And it became a bit of a soap opera. Uh, and that, of course, is uh, the, the deal with Rogers uh, Communications. <laughs> but more importantly, though, I, wa- I, I want you to tie the Rogers and Shaw deal together, too, uh, which is still happening, I guess, now that they've got this other thing settled. And that's going to have an impact on telecommunications in this country. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. So you actually have to go back to about March of this year uh, to first start this story, and this was that Shaw, a family-owned company, primarily based in the West, but here locally they own a cable company or owned a cable company up on the mountain, and they certainly own a number of radio stations, what have you. The Shaw family uh, surprised us all by saying, I think we want to get out of this business cash out, and so we've agreed to merge with Rogers. The deal is worth $28 billion. So that's a significant thing. Of course, it's going to need CRTC approval. And by the way, one other thing, Rogers doesn't have $28 billion, so it was going to need some intricate financing plans. So they made the big announcement, and, and of course, that lessens competition. We go from having four big players in the market, if you also throw in TELUS and Bell, to three. And so I didn't know if the CRTC would love it. Typically what the CRTC would do is approve it with a number of strings attached. There was a hearing held. No decision was made at that time. And and, uh, as we've done with other stories, well, that will unfold in 2022, what the CRTC decides. While all of that is going on and Rogers is trying to sort out financing, in the boardroom we suddenly had this drama. Ed Rogers wanted to fire the CEO of of Rogers Corporation, a fellow named Joe Natale, I guess because Mr. Natale wasn't doing whatever whatever Edward Rogers wanted. Uh, And uh, when he tried to do that, not only did the board disagree, but they fired Ed Rogers as chair of the board for about 48 hours. And then Edward Rogers convened a meeting of the Rogers Family Trust, reinstalled himself in chair, and then once he did that, installed a new board. And so for a period of two weeks, the Rogers Corporation had two different board chairs and two different boards. Craziness. Never seen anything like this. A B.C. court then heard both sides of the argument and, and concluded, believe it or not, that Edward Rogers acted appropriately that the what we thought was the existing board chair and board are gone. There's a new board in there. First thing uh, that the uh, after getting this victory, legal victory, Edward Rogers says, I have full confidence in Joe Natale. And, and you thought, oh, I don't believe that. And sure enough, 10 days later, Joe Natale was out as the CEO. A new person has been put in. Now his job is to calm those nice people who finance these things so that they can get the money to go through with Shaw, assuming they get approval from the CRTC. Now, I wanted to finish with that story simply because uh, the now ex-CEO, Mr. Natale. Natale, of course, is the Italian word for Christmas. Uh, so it's, it's a seasonal story as far as I'm concerned, uh, which way, is probably the same. Mr. Natale, we don't know exactly <laughs> what his uh, severance package was worth, 
but we think it was in at least on the order of two uh, excuse me, twenty-five billion, twenty-five million dollars. So he he went with a big box of cash at Christmas time. Well, good for him, uh, Marvin. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for our, all your help uh, through the past year uh, during some very confusing times. Sometimes, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I look forward to our conversations uh, in the coming year. Absolutely, Bill. Everything same for everyone else listening. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about music and entertainment, uh, which uh, took a hit during COVID and is continuing to take a hit with some of the other uh, restrictions that have been put in place, but still a, a very, very important year uh, for music, uh, both uh, in the global sense and even locally. And we're going to talk about that with our good friend Lou Molinaro. Lou, of course, is a member of the Hamilton Music Advisory Team an instructor at the Harris Institute for Music, and a great musicologist, too. Uh, Lou, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for hopping on today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Hope all is well with you. Uh, yeah, so far, so good. Looking forward to uh, to some time off, in which case I'm uh, finally going to watch the Get Back documentary. I just haven't had the time to do it previously, but I'll have lots of time over Christmas to sit down and, and digest this. Have you seen it? Yeah, it, you'll, you'll love it. I um I had I couldn't watch it all at once because uh, no nobody could <laughs> no but it, it was so full of factual things and you're looking at all these little nuances you had to rewind a bit just it, it's fantastic Peter Jackson knocked it out of the park he did such a great job what's the significance of the movie I mean you know you and I are fans I mean well going way back obviously uh, and I know that you know musicologists will look at that and say look at these guys you know they were really only on the global scene for about seven or eight years. Uh, they changed music forever uh, and continue to be an influence over music. And not just because Paul and Ringo are still around, but uh, they, they are still a major influence in, in pop music in so many different ways. I think they're the example of uh, musicians that really had vision and went for it. And I think just the fact that they weren't uh, afraid to explore, they weren't pigeonholed uh, as much as we knew them as a pop band, they got into psychedelic, they experienced, uh, uh, you know, they, they they were influenced by a lot of uh, Middle East music. So I think they, they're, they're the example of artists that if you want to do something, go for it because you just never know. And when they played those little cavern clubs, I bet you they had no idea that they were going to be, you know, the band that will never go away. You know, it's, I know, as I say, I haven't seen it yet, but I've talked to folks who have. And, and one of the things I heard consistently from uh, some of the musicologists that have watched it is uh, it, it kind of opened their eyes to, to, to the fact that there was a lot more collaboration in that band than maybe we gave them credit for. We just tended to think of uh, Lennon McCartney wrote a bunch of stuff. They'd go into the studio and, and Ringo and George would just do what they were told. Uh, and play along. Uh, but but there was back and forth. There was a lot of feedback about how these songs were going to be presented and, and how they were going to be uh, performed and played. And, and, and I guess we always knew, of course, that George Harrison was a brilliant songwriter in his own right. Uh, but the collaboration is something that, that, that was really kind of, uh, I, I think, something that stood out for an awful lot of people that have seen this. I think that's what Peter uh, Peter Jackson added uh, that magic by really uh, bringing that up into into the forefront of this documentary because we we we've always been told that it's like a Lennon and McCartney show with influences from Harrison and of course Ringo Starr but when you see the documentary you'll certainly see that this was a four piece that really worked together as a quartet and as a group and not so much just uh, singularly or just uh, Lennon and McCartney uh, it, it, they. They were the Beatles because it was the four of them that uh, dynamically worked well together. Uh, since we're on a nostalgic kick here, I, I was also looking up uh, in advance of our conversation here this morning. Uh, 
uh, iconic albums that turned 50 in 2021, 50 years old. Uh, this is my record collection. I'm like, I know. I, I still remember. Uh, I, I, well, Marvin Gaye and What's Going On, which I still think is one of the greatest albums of all time of any Agreed. musical genre. Uh, yeah. The Doors, L.A. Woman, Sticky Fingers by the Stones, Who's Next by the Who, uh, Bowie's Hunky Dory, uh, Led Zeppelin Four, uh, Nilsson Schmilson. Uh, we'll talk about Harry Nilsson in just a second. I, sure. Yeah, I, every time I go through this list here, Lou, I kept thinking about the time I was. Most of these I got at Sam the Record Man, of course. Uh, as a lot of people did back in those days, uh, but boy, it's it's this is like a, a listing of 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 the music that we grew up in and the music that influenced generations. And and maybe I'll start with uh, with Marvin Gaye and what's going on. Uh, uh, Fifty years ago, uh, not too many people were talking about environmental issues or civil and social unrest. Uh, he was not just talking about it; he was singing about it. This is a landmark album. I absolutely agree. And that's the thing, you know, there's that old saying, old records never die. And the, the this list that you just uh, rhymed off are examples of it. But Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is a pure example of just being a visionary and um, just artistically explaining uh, his, his stance on it rather than just uh, protesting it. He really put some beautiful music to it and it became a piece of art. And to this day, I don't know how many um, various musicians and artists have covered it over the years. And it's still one of those songs that you hear everywhere, you know, whether you're in a restaurant or whether you're watching a soul band or whether you're watching a blues band, it's just a staple. Well, you know, we know about the B2 movement. We know about the social unrest that's happening. Uh, you should listen to, I'd re-listen to the single, uh, what's going on. And uh, for those of us who are involved in environmental issues, and I think we all have much more consciousness of that, uh, Mercy, Mercy Me was a, a brilliant song that's as, as as relevant today as it was back in these days, maybe even more so than it uh, than it was in those days. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you quickly about Harry Nilsson. I mean, they, they called this guy the fifth Beatle. He hung around, John Lennon and he were pretty tight friends, but he hung around with, with all the Beatles from time to time uh died way too young but uh, a mm -hmm. great talent yeah so he was really influenced by the beatles and then once the beatles learned about him uh they they, they loved him and they were really influenced by harry nelson but just recently i reached out um to um a musician by the name of bob segarini who was yeah, in LA. Bob, yeah yeah so he was an la uh, musician and then he moved to toronto or he moved to montreal and then in toronto in the early 70s and he was hanging out with uh, Harry Nilsson in L.A. back at the time when he when uh, Bob was in a band called The Family Tree. And he was telling me his uh, experiences with Harry Nilsson and how unique he was. And he was just like one of those iconic people that just had it all. Like he he was a great singer. Uh, he was a great person. And his albums were just so unique because they're they're almost perfect in a pop sensibility they they were melodically strong uh the band members that played in the studio with him and he was one of those guys that never did any live shows they were always studio uh records only and that was his career uh brilliant uh and, and all, as you say songwriter too uh, the big song by three dog night one was uh, harry nelson's song yes uh, his biggest hit though uh, of course uh was uh, an incredible song that was actually a cover from a bad finger song I uh, can't live living without you, and it was just a, an incredible uh, rendition of that. John Lennon's Imagine album, also fifty years old. Uh, Zeppelin, as we mentioned. Uh, why is it? I mean, I, you know, even as we were enjoying this stuff back in those days, Lewis, these things were being released. There's probably always something in the back of our head that said, you know, if these guys, this this music will last maybe another eight or ten years, and well, it's going to be forgotten. How has all this stuff endured over fifty years? I think I, I was actually thinking about this as I was going through that list, and. 
each one of those artists that you uh, mentioned, they're music fans first and foremost. And I think they were the type of people that uh, really went out to record stores and went to shows and really soaked in a lot of music and then developed their own music based on a lot of the influential music that they discovered. Um, you know, when you hear about the Beatles uh, and, and being influenced by the blues, the Rolling Stones, and I think they were just music fans first, but yet they just had this natural ability of just creating beautiful music and uh, everlasting music because 50 years later, Led Zeppelin four is still selling a lot of copies of, uh, of albums or CDs or what have you. And a lot of their music is being used in films and television. Th these songs will never go away. But I think the, the, the point is, is that they were first and foremost uh, music, uh, music lovers and not just people that were able to play and uh, perform well. Uh, we lost Charlie Watts this past year, the uh, the drummer for the Stones, and uh, probably a lot of us learned a lot more about Charlie uh, after his death than we do. I mean, we always knew he was a great musician and a great drummer, uh, but his jazz influences over the years and uh, and his contribution, he was uh, he was kind of the glue that held the Stones together for many years, wasn't he? He sure was, and I couldn't think of anyone else that could. And Mick and Keith really relied on his input and his ability to say yes to continuing on with the Stones because so often, and they've been quoted, if Charlie says no, we're not doing it. So obviously there was something, not so much just in his musical abilities, but his personal, uh, who he was as a person to be able to deal with uh, strong uh, personalities like Keith and Mick. Can you imagine? No, no. I, well, <laughs> you know, when you got two alpha males like that, and but uh, but incredible talent. Uh, we lost Phil Spector this year, a, a very uh, unusual man uh, with very tragic circumstances, of course, uh, in his later years. But pre-Beatles, Lou, uh, this guy was the king of pop music, wasn't he? I mean, his production techniques uh, were second to none, and uh, he made an awful lot of people into big stars. He sure did. And, and sadly, it's the tragedy that we remember him for, because yeah. like prior to, you know, the dark cloud that hung over his head, um, Phil Spector created and he really just revolutionized the whole industry with regards to recording and producing records. And, you know, he 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 was miles ahead of everybody and everybody really that was developing their whole engineering uh, ways and means we're looking up to uh, Phil Spector but sadly we just remember Phil Spector for the last part of his life and uh, that tragic um, you know that tragedy that happened to him and unfortunately you know it, it's like the the tortured artist you know we we there's so many of them out there that are brilliant in their work but sadly they're also people who've got these dark clouds above their heads and we tend mm -hmm. to remember that more than their contribution to the art the wall of sound as it was called well, which was really the wrecking crew for a certain i mean you know, uh, those great guys in the wrecking crew were, were the, the instrumentals and the musicians behind an awful lot of this stuff uh, the story i always remember about the specter though uh you know the, all these great groups that he, he produced uh and you've been in studios you've recorded stuff you understand the technique uh but he had a car radio speaker uh, right there on the board when he was producing and mixing all these things and that's how we listen to the song is he said that's how the people that are going to buy the record are going to hear it i want to know how it sounds on that car radio and th and that was his that was his his barometer right there which is was kind of unique and given the times back in the early 1960s uh of course that that probably made an awful lot of sense uh, we'll also remember him, by the way, for uh, coming in late in the Beatles' career, too. And a lot of people say screwing up the Let It Be album, but we'll, we'll let that pass for the time being. 
Uh, I know. <laughs> sometimes simplicity is the best, right, with music? I, yeah, I think so. I think uh, the classic story about McCartney, of course, coming into the studio one day and uh, uh, the long and winding road, which he had thought was going to be a nice, lovely ballad. And, and of course, Phil Spector did what Phil Spector does to him. And, <laughs> I know. Uh, McCartney was not amused, shall we say. No, uh, no. Let, let, got a few minutes left. I want to ask you about the live yeah. music scene, okay? Because that's something that's really taken a hit uh, because of the ups and downs of the pandemic. Uh, you know, Hamilton and London, where our stations, of course, our listeners at CFPL in London, of course, here in CHML in Hamilton, uh, we know how the great live music scene has really been uh, a catalyst for development downtown. There's some great venues, some great artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how are people surviving? I, I, I'm always wondering about this because it's very difficult these days uh, to even find live music right now because of what's happening with COVID. Uh, you're in touch with these guys all the time. Uh, are they on life support? Are they just hanging in there? I'm hoping, you know, it's, there are better days ahead, but what's, what's the status right now? I think they're hanging in there. I think uh, the life support uh, right at the very beginning, because the status, we just didn't know uh, once there's a, government uh, assistance available that kept them afloat. Then we had that little uh, window of opportunity uh, with minimal capacity and everybody just felt very comfortable going back in. And now we're back in the cave again. But you see, the thing that really stood out to me was how they really stuck in there during this very difficult year. They were resilient and a lot of these venues that have been so prominent in cities like London and Hamilton uh, mean a lot to people. So when um, there, there, there was a GoFundMe campaigns or when there were uh, campaigns to buy merch to support venues, everybody did something because we, we, we all knew how important these uh, uh, businesses were to live music and still are and always will be. But the, the thing that really impressed me was how, you know, looking in Hamilton, we ended up getting two new uh, venues during this pandemic. The Staircase yeah. Theater now is, is uh, continuing uh, to do live music. And then Tim and Mark from uh, Supercrawl, they opened up the Bridgeworks and it's a beautiful room. And, you know, once everything kind of goes, quote unquote, back to normal, this beautiful 500 facility room will be a contender at bringing a lot of great artists uh, into Hamilton that perhaps we could before because we didn't have the appropriate room um, for budget reasons and also for production reasons. I, actually, I was down there a couple of weeks ago to uh, Isn't to it beautiful? For, yeah, for a great cup uh, event. And, and uh, Tim Potisic was there. As a matter of fact, I was talking to Tim about that. Uh, it just seems to have the magic touch, and it's it's great that uh, the Tim's still alive and well and doing great uh, with hap- what's happening and and bringing a venue in like this. And and you're right. I mean, it seems to run contrary to what everybody was thinking uh, because of the challenges. Here's uh, you know he and and Mark having the vision and and the courage, frankly, to say, yeah, we're going to take a run at this pandemic or no pandemic. And you're right, it's a great venue, a fabulous venue. Uh, and it's going to accommodate an awful lot of people. But I think it's a classic example of of the music fans in both cities. Uh, build it and they will come. We, they, we, we love live music. We love to listen to, to the great local talent in these cities. And I also love the fact that a lot of these promoters and club owners are taking a never say die attitude yeah. to it. And, and, you know, I commend them for that because I know that, you know, if – Oh, I, I I couldn't even imagine being in this situation right now. I, I don't know what I would be doing, but I, I certainly uh, congratulate uh, these club owners and promoters that are hanging in because uh, we, you know, if anything, if they're 
if there are any campaigns in supporting these venues, please take part and do your part because we need these rooms to uh, support live music. And cities like London and Hamilton, it, live music is so important to us. Well, and it's it's a it's a breeding ground for some of the great talents. I remember talking with Max Kerman, of course, uh, a couple of years ago when the Junos were in London. Uh, and he says, you know, he says, last time I was there, he says, we got off the bus, the Canada coach bus, and unloaded our instruments from underneath the bus uh, and carried them to the gig that we had to play. And, uh, well, things have worked out pretty f- well for the Arkells since then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think somebody else is carrying the stuff for them now. Uh, sure. But, but you just don't know. I mean, I saw a great piece in the, the Spectator, the Hamilton paper the other day, about Tara Lightfoot, too. Uh, so yeah. they're there, and, and, you know, they're where they are today because of that support from the public, and we need to do our job. But, uh, you know, the upside is that we love listening to them anyway and, and their career developments. These rooms are strong foundations, and they're stepping stones. And it's like you said, you can't get from A to B. Uh, without us and so a lot of these venues are hugely important for the growth when you look at bands like the dirty nil uh they, mm-hmm. they start playing small venues on a sunday night and lo and behold they're playing 800 to 1000 seat venues all across canada and the states well uh here's hoping that 2022 is going to be another great year and a better year for for live music as well uh lou always a pleasure thank you so much for this uh best uh, of the season by bon natale to you and your family to you uh, as well and, uh, bill and to the best for uh, 2022, too. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, my time is always yours. All the best during the holidays, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.